and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. When we last left our former diplomat from North Bend, he was packing his bags and making ready to head back to the Buckeye State from South America. The trip, however, would be more long and arduous than Harrison could have imagined. After he sent off his letter to Colombian President Simon Bolivar, Harrison left with a small party for the nearby town of Enolima. He was not there long before his secretary, Major Renslosser von Renslosser, came riding up to inform him that a Virginian and Columbian, Lieutenant Dabney O'Carr, was accusing Harrison, the members of his diplomatic staff, and other foreign associates of Harrison, of working to promote anti-Bolivar sentiment and rebellion. While Harrison headed back to Bogota to address the charges head-on, he had the Major go to find his son, Carter Bassett Harrison, who had also been implicated in the plot and was visiting with a Spanish colonel at another nearby village. Harrison's successor as U.S. Minister to Columbia, Thomas P. Moore, tried to reassure Harrison that all was well, but it seems that Harrison had only been allowed to return to Bogota on Moore's assurance that he would be responsible for Harrison. The situation didn't get any less tense for Harrison when in mid-October, a recent dinner companion of Harrison's was arrested on charges of conspiring against the government. Harrison would spend his last few days in Bogota, attempting to and ultimately succeeding in securing his release before making his way, beginning on October 19th, down the Magdalena River for the coast. For those who listened to episode 25, The Columbia Mission, you'll recall that I said that Harrison thought that arrangements had been made for him and his party to be transported aboard the Natchez from Carthagena. Well, the Natchez never showed up. Some sources have claimed or hinted that it was an intentional slight by Jackson or his supporters, but I'd have to research further before saying one way or the other. What we do know is that Harrison and his party cooled their heels for two months in Carthagena before finally being able to make arrangements for them to depart aboard the brig Montilla on January 10, 1830. Nearly a month later, on February 5th, a year to the day of his arrival in Bogota, Harrison and his party arrived in New York City. Though he would be given public dinners in New York and Cincinnati, his return wasn't as much of a warm homecoming as he would have liked. As Alexis de Tocqueville described in his visit a few years later, quote, No sooner do you set foot upon American ground than you are stunned by a kind of tumult. Almost the only pleasure which an American knows is to take a part in the government and to discuss its measures. Though Jackson had asserted, quote, that the president has not nor will he ever make an appointment but with a view to the public good and the security of the fiscal concerns of the nation. It was clear that Jackson saw the public good as being part and parcel with party politics and his conception of the ideals of what would come to be known as the Democratic Party. When discussing the old Jeffersonian Republican Party in a message to Congress later in his tenure, Jackson wrote, quote, I have labored to reconstruct this great party and bring the popular power to bear with full influence upon the government by securing its permanent ascendancy. Harrison had already lost his appointment due to party intrigue, and now that he was back on home soil, he became one flashpoint among many in the party struggle. The New York press, depending on their party affiliation, either bemoaned or celebrated Harrison's dismissal. Meanwhile, Colombian Foreign Minister Vigera had filed a formal complaint against Harrison, accusing him of having, while serving in his official capacity, given support to anti-Bolivar factions. Word also reached Harrison that his successor, Thomas Moore, had been talking ill of Harrison to folks in Bogota and administration officials in Washington. As he had before when attacked, 
Harrison laid out his defense in a detailed manner in a pamphlet in which he reprinted in full his letter to Bolivar of September 27th of the year prior. Two former presidents, James Madison and John Quincy Adams, would praise Harrison's letter to Bolivar and his conduct in representing the nation. In a show of humility, during a stop in Washington, D.C. on his way home, Harrison paid a call on Andrew Jackson at the White House. This would do him no immediate good, however. Harrison returned home in April to an uncertain future. At this point, not only was Harrison out of a job, but two of his children were on shaky ground as well. His oldest son, Sims, had lost his position at the land office at Vincennes when he cashed a draft for $5,000 for someone who ultimately proved to be insolvent. So he had moved back with his family just across the Ohio River from North Bend in order to try to figure out how he would support his family while also paying back the debt, including interest, that the government was holding him liable for with that draft as well as some other disputed claims. Meanwhile, William Henry Harrison Jr. had fallen off the wagon, all but abandoned his law practice, and accumulated a large amount of debts of his own. He was recovering at the Harrison's home in North Bend when the general arrived back. An old Tippecanoe would spend a great amount of time over the next few years trying to sort out the mess that they were all in. For Harrison, this would entail travel back and forth to Washington, D.C., which would be a large enough burden, but would quickly be coupled with an emotional toll, as Harrison's son, Sims, passed away on October 30, 1830 two days after his 32nd birthday. As Harrison wrote to a friend just over a month later, quote, It almost broke my heart, and never did a house exhibit a scene of greater distress. Never was a man taken away whose life was more necessary to his family. In addition to sorting out Sims's financial situation, Harrison would now take on the burden of pushing forward a petition by Sims's widow for relief, as well as trying to help Sims's mother-in-law, the widow of Zebulon Pike, who Sims was living with at the time of his death, to sort out her estate, which was in some legal entanglements. As Harrison noted to his friend about Mrs. Pike's situation, quote, If the decision should be adverse to her, as they have, you know, not another friend in the world to afford them existence, their future support must be derived from me. It is not, however, the trouble or the expense which I fear, but the apprehension that my utmost exertions to provide for the great number which are dependent upon me will be ineffectual. For those of you who have been listening for a bit, if you haven't figured it out already, from what I've learned of him, it seems that General Harrison was that guy, the guy who everyone turned to when they were in trouble. When the world was falling apart and you didn't know what to do, you'd end up on Harrison's doorstep, and he'd help take the burden off of you and work to figure out what could be done. He was the crisis manager and it seems he got plenty of practice with it, just in his extended family alone. Though embroiled with personal concerns, Harrison wasn't completely absent from the political landscape at the time. Upon his return in 1830, his supporters started putting forward his name for governor of Ohio, as well as for a return to the U.S. Senate. However, this was not to be for one main reason, Henry Clay. Clay's time of helping to push Harrison's career forward was at an end, now that Clay had seen that Harrison could be a threat to his getting to the White House. Indeed, the editors of Clay's papers and Harrison biographer Dorothy Goebel note that Clay's supporters in Ohio actively worked to deny Harrison the nomination to both the governorship and the Senate in 1830 and 1831, respectively. This setback would not turn the general into a wallflower, however. In June 1831, he delivered a speech to the Hamilton County Agricultural Society that, while reflecting Jeffersonian agrarian ideals, 
also drew upon some of the themes of his letter to Bolivar. Quote, I have no doubt also that a taste for agricultural pursuits is the best means of disciplining the ambition of those daring spirits who occasionally spring up in the world, for good or for evil, to defend or destroy the liberties of their fellow men, as the principles received from education or circumstances may tend. After a section about Washington and the Cincinnatus ideal, he continues, quote, Your efforts, gentlemen, to diffuse a taste for agriculture amongst men of all descriptions and professions may produce results more important even than increasing the means of subsistence and the enjoyment of life. It may cause some future conqueror for his country to end his career guiltless of his country's blood. In other words, as he told Bolivar, putting people to good employment in productive industry will result in a strong democracy. He would continue with his focus on agriculture with the first in a series of letters to the Vice President of the United States, John C. Calhoun, on November 29th of that year. The timing of this letter was crucial, so let's back up for a minute and take a look at what John C. Calhoun had been up to that year. Calhoun had had an uneasy relationship with Andrew Jackson, the second president that he had served as vice president, as he had been John Quincy Adams' vice president as well. Remember that one for trivia questions, folks. Though Calhoun had formed an alliance with Jackson around the time that Adams became president, the two had fallen out over political machinations and backroom fighting best represented in the social kerfuffle that became known as the Petticoat War. We don't have time to go into the details of their fallout here, but it was discussed on the eighth episode of this podcast, the Martin Van Buren episode. I'll link back to it on the show notes page for this episode so that you can go back to learn more about that. Suffice it to say, they were not on good terms, and what Calhoun did in 1831 did not bring them any closer together. Calhoun had been developing ideas for a while in response to the Tariff of 1828, which was also known as the Tariff of Abominations. The tariff set protective duties on manufactured textiles, which helped manufacturing centers in the North, but which the South blamed for the dropping price of cotton that hurt their bottom line. In late July, Calhoun completed what came to be known as his Fort Hill Letter, in which he outlined his belief that, as each state was a free and independent entity within the National Confederation, states could unilaterally say, that laws of the federal government that did not suit the will or best interest of the state did not apply to them. This was the concept that would be known as nullification. He had already articulated some of these ideas in the past, but in 1831 the momentum was building and the subject was coming to a head due to the upcoming presidential election. The tariff of 1828, which had been supported by the pro-Jackson leadership in Congress, was noted by Jackson biographer Robert Remini as having helped him win election by gaining him support in the states of Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, New York, and Pennsylvania. So it could be supposed that both sides in the upcoming contest would attempt to use tariff reform for political gain. It was on this subject that Harrison wrote to Calhoun in November 1831. He gave a brief protestation that, quote, I have not the vanity to suppose that it is in my power to shed any new light upon this subject, and still less that I could gain any laurels in a political contest with you, before he launches into his, quote, vindication of the practical agriculturalists who are tariff men from the opprobrium which has been cast upon them in the course of the tariff contest. Basically, 
Harrison was using a letter which he and his associates naturally had printed in Ohio newspapers around the beginning of 1832 to paint Harrison as and gain him some morals as a champion of the small farmer. His follow-up letters to Calhoun on April 30th directly address the Fort Hill letter of the prior year and seem to reconcile his previous states' rights tendencies with an understanding that, quote, each individual who is a party to them, the state and federal constitutions, has surrendered his natural right to govern himself to the majority of his fellow citizens under the limitations which are expressed, and that it was wrong that, quote, a very small minority would have it in their power to arrest the passage of measures of vital importance to the majority. What we see developing in Harrison's political ideology is a blend of Jeffersonian agrarianism and a federalist republicanism. The best system of government is one in which the people are involved and nurtured, but there is a need for order and structure imparted by our elected officials in government. The rule of law and the rule of the people in synonymous harmony rather than an either-or proposition. Political intrigue would heat up in 1832 as Henry Clay geared up for a challenge against Andrew Jackson for the presidency. Clay would bring the issues of the Bank of the United States as well as the tariff to a head in the Senate in order to illustrate the differences between the two candidates and, while it's beyond our scope to go into all the details, let's just say it didn't go well for Clay. Harrison, while voting for Clay, could do little more than that in that year as he continued to strain under his financial burden. In addition to paying off debt and supporting three families, he also had to deal with entertaining a deluge of visitors, along with his having, quote, to receive and answer the many applications which are made to me by old soldiers for advice and assistance. Harrison's farming operation took a major hit as, quote, a great flood carried away buildings and fences along the Miami and Ohio rivers, desolating farmlands and the lower portions of Cincinnati. Though Harrison was under the weather, he roused himself and, quote, rode out to direct the rebuilding of fences, but suffered a relapse, and again took to his bed. Harrison was getting older, with the milestone of 60 looming in 1833. However, the old martial fire still lurked beneath his breast. The end of 1832 saw the majority of South Carolina's leaders declare themselves firmly for nullification and a challenge of the federal government going so far as to call for the citizenry to take up arms, if need be, to defend the state's interests, to which Jackson responded with a proclamation in which he asserted definitively that, quote, disunion by armed force is treason. Congress quickly passed the force bill, authorizing Jackson to use force in South Carolina if need be, and Harrison found himself on the side of Jackson. Indeed, in February, he wrote to Jackson's Secretary of War, Lewis Cass, asserting that, quote, I hope to heaven that the President will adhere to the principles of his proclamation. He will be supported by the great majority of the American people. I can answer for Indiana, and if need be, I will abandon my farm and take the rounds amongst the boys. It has been for my country that I have endeavored to fix these principles, and in that cause I would spend my last breath. Ultimately, Harrison did not have to take the field again, and the situation was resolved peacefully, leaving the general free to weigh in on another topic of growing national import. As I quoted George Dangerfield in episode 21, The Era of Ill Feelings, the relationship between the North and the South, quote, grew embittered 
invariably over the question of tariffs, but what really poisoned it was the question of slavery. Abolitionist groups were growing in the North, best represented by William Lloyd Garrison, who published his first issue of The Liberator on New Year's Day, 1831, with it boldly pronouncing its aim to be, quote, immediate and uncompensated emancipation. These new, more fervent abolitionists were seen by many, including Harrison, as being dangerously provocative. Thus, on March 4, 1833, Harrison delivered a speech in Cheviot, a town east of North Bend, in which he denounced any, quote, insulting influence with the domestic concerns of the South, as he felt that, quote, the slave population is under the exclusive control of the states which possess them, and that, quote, the discussion of emancipation in the non-slaveholding states is equally injurious to the slaves and their masters. Though Harrison had earlier in his life indicated anti-slavery views, the Cheviot speech argues that if the price to maintain the Union was the continuation of slavery, then that was a price he was willing to pay, as, quote, we cannot emancipate the slaves of the other states without their consent, but by producing a convulsion which would undo us all. In my opinion, though not to defend Harrison on this, two thoughts should enter the conversation for a full understanding of the context. First, as we've already seen, Harrison emulates past national leaders, Washington and Jefferson in particular, as both examples and the foundation of his ideology. Particularly with Jefferson, and the Louisiana Purchase is an excellent example of this, earlier leaders had provided examples of times when they had to take their personal opinions out of the equation and make decisions that they felt were in the best interests of the nation, even if it may not be what they personally desired. Second, at this point in history, it is difficult to imagine that anyone seeking the presidency could successfully do so without at least a nominal acceptance of slavery. Remember, this is 1833. The election of Lincoln is still nearly three decades away. That being said, his private correspondence does seem to indicate that the public Harrison matched up rather well to the private Harrison. In a letter to his nephew, Benjamin Harrison, in 1822, the general asserts that, quote, there are other circumstances which would deter me from going to a cotton country. The principle is that the Negro's population is, in all those sections, so immensely superior to that of the whites. It must be remembered that Harrison was originally from Virginia and likely grew up hearing his father and other planners talk about their concerns about what emancipation would mean, as well as fears of slave uprisings. To counter attacks of him being too pro-slavery, however, he did assert in his Cheviot speech that, quote, I have been the means of liberating many slaves, but never placed one in bondage. Though he was not a proponent of slavery, he also realized the myriad of issues that immediate emancipation would bring, and was fearful of what it would mean for all. While still continuing to pursue private business ventures, including the possibility of an expedition to Texas, Harrison was slowly but surely cultivating a public image with the possibility of 1836 looming. That election would find him employed in public service, but at a much lower level than he had served previously. In 1834, a petition with 1,300 signatures was sent to the Hamilton County Court of Common Pleas for Harrison to be named as Clerk of the Court, to which the judges ultimately agreed, and Harrison took up his duties with the assistance of his son, Carter Bassett Harrison. This position would ultimately prove to be a godsend for the family's financial health, 
As the regular income from his salary, at $6,000 a year, it wasn't a small bit of change, allowed Harrison to develop solid plans to extract himself and his family from debt. By the end of the year, Harrison's star was on the rise again in the press, as the Pennsylvania Intelligencer published a story calling on Old Buckeye, meaning Harrison, to challenge Jackson's anointed successor, Vice President Martin Van Buren. Shortly after this, Harrison wrote to his old friend, Solomon Van Rensselaer, that, quote, Some folks are silly enough to have formed a plan to make a President of the United States out of this clerk and clodhopper. However, the old Buckeye clodhopper would have a long road ahead to the White House, with numerous folks, both Democrats and Whigs, ready and willing to do anything they could to keep him from getting there. Next time, we'll explore the presidential elections of 1836 and 1840 in an episode I'd like to call Keep the Ball a-Rollin', The Long Path to the White House. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or show ideas, please feel free to contact me at Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, again, all one word. As mentioned earlier, links to past episodes touched upon in this one, as well as sources used in this episode and other supplementary material, can be found on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. Past episodes are also available on the blog, as well as iTunes and Stitcher. Finally, if you haven't checked it out already, may I recommend that you check out my new podcast, The Presidencies of the United States. We're in the midst of a series on the first president, George Washington, so you can learn more about the man who Harrison held in such high regard. Links to the new podcast can be found on the Harrison Podcast blog and Facebook page. As always, thanks so much for listening, and take care, friends.